So, Ephesians chapter 3 on that note. And apparently they do grow back, so we're good. Let's read that together and we'll pray. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things." so that through the church and manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of God for us this morning. Let's pray and ask God's help. Lord, we come to you this morning and we sit before your word. And we know that you're a speaking God, a communicating God, um, that you haven't left us in the dark, uh, that you want to speak your will, your ways. Um, You want to show us the beauties and mercies and kindness you've shown us uh, preeminently through the life and death and resurrection of your Son and the giving of your Spirit. So now, God, we sit humbly before you. We ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you'd help us not just be hearers of your word, lest we deceive ourselves, but also be doers as well. So help us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if you uh, read history or you're interested in history, one of the fascinating things about history is that a lot of some of the great literature uh, that we've experienced or enjoyed in the last few hundred years were actually written from prison. (laughs) And uh, so if you remember Martin Luther King uh, Jr., he wrote the the letters at the Birmingham Jail, which was kind of a, a call to arms to say, hey, there's some racial tension in our country. We need to do something about that. He was in prison for about nine days and wrote this amazing letter. If you've ever read it, it's really powerful. I've read it a couple times. Uh, if you're familiar with Nelson Mandela, he wrote a, his, actually he wrote his, his autobiography from uh, prison. He was in prison for about 30 years fighting for injustice in South uh, uh, Africa. And also, maybe a, a famous Christian classic that you've read, uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody read that? Um, that was actually written from a prison cell, that uh, John Bunyan was in prison, um, long story, but, but wrote one of the great masterpieces of, of Christian literature that to understand God's grace and, and his mercies. Um, so, so there's just this power that comes when you're writing something from a prison cell for a variety of reasons. And one of the things that's fascinating for us this morning is as we look at Ephesians, and we've, we preached through Ephesians years and years ago, but now we're doing it again. Um, but we've also done Philippians. Uh, these are all prison letters. And so the Apostle Paul is writing from prison. And I think it's not insignificant that he's writing from prison. Obviously, in God's sovereign uh, timing, that that would happen, that he'd be persecuted and put in prison, which he, he'll, he'll uh, explore for us in, in a few minute, moments here. But there's something about listening closely to what would you say to someone if you knew that there's a chance you would never see them face-to-face ever again. That if you wouldn't see your friends, your family, the, the church that you planted and, and said, you know, hey, I, w- I want you to, to be encouraged here, but there's a good chance I may never live to see your face ever again. What would you say? What would you say to your close friends if you knew there was a chance that you might not see them ever ever again. And I think it's important to understand the context of Ephesians, especially as we jump into chapter 3 as we've been working through uh, this letter, because, because Paul has been, been looking at this our redemption in an individual nature, in a personal nature. But as he's, he's spent about a, a chapter and a half doing that, but then as he's kind of shifted for the last chapter and a half, he's looked at the collective nature of our redemption in Christ. That when we become Christians, not only are we redeemed uh, into Christ, united with Christ, but we're also redeemed into a family called the church. And Paul has a lot to say um, about that. So what exactly does he want to say to us about the church this morning from his own lips and from his own pen out of a prison cell. Well, we get a little clue from the end of uh, verse 13, or I should say verse 13, 
So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. That, that as he writes this letter to the church, he, he says, hey, I'm not with you. I'm not face to face with you. There's a chance I might not get out of here, but I don't want you to lose heart because God is at work in your midst. I don't want you to lose heart that, that if you look at your life and you look at all that's going on around you, because in a, in a first century context, as Andy even mentioned, you know, persecution, we just don't understand what that would have been like. To, to literally lose your life or, or be separated from your families or, or treated with sustain or, 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 or killed for your faith, we, we just have a hard time putting those in categories. But, but Paul's writing from this prison cell saying, don't lose heart. God is at work in your midst. God is at work in your midst. And so, so I want to spend the next few minutes in this, this sermon uh, explaining why we shouldn't lose heart as, as the church. Uh, why we shouldn't lose heart when things don't always go the way we'd want them uh, to go. And, and, and this is where Paul gets very personal about his own ministry and his own life and what God has done with him uh, personally and then how he understood that mission uh, to the world. Um, and, and by God's grace, how we are now recipients of that same uh, mission that he was faithful to. So first, what Paul does in chapter 3 is he talks about the nature of this gospel that he preached from prison. He talks about the nature of this gospel preached, revealed, excuse me. He talks about the nature of the gospel that was to be shared. What, what, how do we share that? Why did we share that? It's not just something to think about, but it's also something to be shared. And then what does that mean for us today? What's the implications for our church today in 2018 or anyone that, that follows Christ? So the nature of this gospel revealed, here's how he'd want to encourage us. So in verse one, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of of you Gentiles. So, so right out of the gate, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of your Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And he's going to go on and explain what that, that ministry is. But it's very fascinating to look at Paul and understand how he understood his imprisonment. Um, he, he didn't see it as just, you know, well, I, I got in trouble or uh, I did something wrong and now I'm in prison. He actually really didn't break the law. He was just preaching the gospel and he had to stand trial before Nero and they, they put him in prison. But he saw himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now, if you lopped off Christ Jesus, he would just say, well, I'm just a prisoner, right? I'm, I'm in jail. I, I did something wrong, right? You may have family or friends that have been to prison. Maybe you've been to prison, Right? I'm a prisoner, right? I'm incarcerated. But he, but he says, no, no, no. The way he understood his imprisonment was, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus because of the work that I'm doing. What God has called me to, the reason I'm in prison is for Jesus himself and for his mission and for his bigger plan in the world. And that's why he can say, hey, don't lose heart. You may not understand all the details, but guess what? God is doing something way bigger and way more profound and way more eternal. And it, it doesn't matter if I'm in a prison cell or not. The gospel will continue to go forward. But like that's what's so beautiful about at least at least Christian faith. I know other, you know, Catholic might see it a little different. You know, Catholics have a little more authoritarian popes and things. We don't really have a pope. I shouldn't say we don't really have one. We don't have one. <laughs> right? And like pastors aren't popes of their churches. Like there's not a, a one you know, society or evangelical society or Christian society or, or, or leadership that we go to to say, hey, what do you think about these things? Which is a great point for Paul that even though I'm in prison, the mission's going to still go forward. Because I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus and, and I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus on your behalf for the sake of the, the Gentiles those that he was called to, to go and preach to. Paul talks about this in a similar way in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, just a, a little verse here, but in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel of the power of God. He saw, he saw no disconnect between his suffering and imprisonment and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the greater mission. So that's just part of the deal, right? I mean, Jesus said that, like, hey, if you're going to follow me, there's going to be all kinds of trouble. <laughs> there's going to be all kinds of suffering. Now, again, in 2018, it's going to look very differently, especially in comfortable Western America. 
But, but in other places of the world, as Andy said, in 2018, there, there's all kinds of suffering. I mean, it's even hard to imagine that we would, we would show up to, to worship and, and, and you might maybe be dodging bullets on the way to church. Or not able to even speak the name of Jesus for the fear of being imprisoned or incarcerated or for our families to be abused or attacked. It's hard for us to even have categories for that, right? So I hope daily you just thank God for the grace that you live in America. Because that was God's sovereign plan for your life. Like, you didn't choose when you were, you know, born. And I know for me, you know, something about, you know, my parents, El Camino, I don't know how that happened, but 1979, that's when I was going to be conceived. Like, I didn't choose that. But I got to live in an environment where I had opportunities, and I had clean water and opportunities to hear the gospel in a very comfortable place. And I hope you guys realize that. That's why I think mission trips are great, to just be exposed to how most of the world lives, Right? To, to realize it's not always like this, right? It's not, not all cushy. Like, like I mean, the, sometimes the, the worst part of your day is like, my coffee was too hot. It burned my tongue. Like, if that's the worst part of your day, I think you're okay, right? I said 140 degrees, Starbucks. What is going on here? I'm not an animal. But it's good to keep things in perspective. And that's what Paul was trying to do to, to reveal that this gospel has come to him. Now, now notice how, how this gospel had come to him and how it was revealed to him because Paul is like the least of, of all the, you know, apostles even says that about himself. You know, here's a guy who persecuted Christians. Here's a guy who wanted nothing to do with Christianity. I mean, watched Stephen be stoned and, and, and gave the word. Yeah, go ahead, you know, take him out. And then Jesus, as he always does, shows up and says, you're mine and I got a mission for you. That's how he works. But notice how he describes this gospel. He says, assuming, verse 2, that you had, have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace. Very interesting phrasing here. <clears throat> a stewardship of God's grace. Well, we, we understand, I think, the grace part, this unmerited favor that was given to him, that, that Paul was not looking for this message. He was not looking for this mission. He was not saying, hey, you know, someday I'd love to be in prison and be telling people about Jesus. It was all by God's grace. It was all unmerited. It wasn't earned on any level. It was God coming and seeking him out and saying, Paul, I have a mission for you. Why do you persecute me? But he's going to go and turn the, the world upside down. This is all God's grace. But, but this stewardship is such a beautiful phrase. I think it's something we need to, we need to capture um, more when we think about the gospel and think about the church and think about uh, what Christianity really is all, all about. <clears throat> so this idea of stewardship, it's this, this word we actually get, the, the stewardship of God's grace is oikos. It means the, the root is oikos. It's, it's a household or a house. So... so to say it this way, Paul saw his mission as one that was going to manage the affairs of, of the house, okay? So, so similar, maybe, maybe a, a, a man in a house that has a family, right? He, he, he doesn't own the children. He doesn't own his wife. He's simply a steward of that home, right? Or, or, or the things you could say even a manager kind of gets at that, that a little bit. Right? If you're a manager in a company, that you, you don't own your employees. I mean, if you do, you're, you're not a good manager, they're not there. They're not slave labor. They're not to be treated poorly, right? You're simply a steward of what's been entrusted to you, that you're to, to organize the, the affairs of the business, or the, the affairs of the house, but you don't have ultimate ownership of it. Stewardship is not about ownership. That it's given to us by grace. And Paul understood the message of the gospel was simply a stewardship given to him. That, that I'm this manager of a house that I'm going to share this with the family. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to lord it over them, but I'm going I'm to share this thing. It's not my message. I didn't come up with it. And I think that's so helpful that when we think about, when I think about it as a pastor, as elders, as churches here in America, wherever else, is that when we see the gospel of Jesus Christ as a stewardship, guess what? We don't mess with the message. We don't tweak it. We don't make it into our own likening and say, well, maybe we need to change it. Maybe you need to take a little bit of the rough edges off and, and you know, not talk about sin and not talk about hell or wrath or any of those things. Let's, let's kind of soft all those, those rough edges and make it more palatable. But the problem is it's not your message. And it's not my message. That's not my goal as a pastor. Like I, I have kind of the weirdest job description in the history of the universe. Like, hey, Ryan, you're going to go work and you're going to tell people about this thing that's not really yours. You didn't come up with it. You didn't make it up. But, but you're going to simply steward it for the benefit of God's people. And I need to remember that almost every single day. It's not for me to mess with. 
It's not for me to make more palatable. It's simply me, for me and you as God's people to steward it well. It's good news. It's a story to share. It's good news of what Christ has done in human history to redeem and restore all things. And that should also give us the impetus to be even better evangelists than we are. It doesn't mean you have to be gifted in evangelism, but to say, I just have a story i got to tell you about how the world is and why things are the way they are and what God has done in human history. To reconcile people to himself, to reconcile us to, to, together, to, to, to make all things new, to, 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 to restore and transform all things, every bit of creation. It's a stewardship that Paul was called to share. <clears throat> now, part of that stewardship <clears throat> and the way in which Paul is revealing to us really what the gospel is, is he uses this word mystery quite, a, quite often. And, and I know that word mystery can be a little confusing, especially in English vernacular, um, because a lot of times you think mystery, you think mystery novels, right? Anybody like mystery novels? I love mystery novels, right? So, so a mystery is, is, you know, we don't really know what it is. It's kind of this puzzling thing, and, and we're not sure if we're, we're ever going to really know what it is. But, but the way the scriptures use the word mystery is a little bit different. It really has this meaning. It's a divine secret now revealed in plain sight. It's a divine secret now revealed in plain sight. Notice how Paul talks about that, how the mystery, verse 3, was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So, so it came to him by revelation directly from God to, to say, this is what the gospel is. This is the message. Paul didn't sit around and reflect and contemplate and go, you know, I wonder who God is and what he's like and, and what he's done. God revealed it to him, just as the scriptures reveal to us who God is. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So there's this mystery. He's kind of playing on this, these, these Old Testament promises. There was a, a mystery that hadn't been revealed yet. And so what is the actual mystery? Now, without me having to, to summarize, he actually gives it to us, which is always nice when the scriptures do that. But notice with me in, in verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations... So, so the prophets of old, right, people of old, they didn't know what the mystery was. They were waiting for this mystery, waiting for this promise to be revealed ultimately. Keep going. Revealed to the holy apostles, prophets by the Spirit, verse 6. This mystery is, thank you, Paul, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I love when Scripture is like really, really clear. A lot of times, not so clear. But Paul's like, here's a little gift. You want to know what the mystery is? Here's the mystery. The mystery is that the Gentiles, non-Jewish people that didn't know the Old Testament scriptures, didn't know the promises of God, didn't have the law, that they worshiped false gods, worshiped all kinds of, of gods, that, that one day they would be heirs of the promise, that they would be part of the family of God, that all the promises that were given to the Jews and all who would believe in God would now be theirs in Christ Jesus. That this inheritance that was given to Jews would now be part of the Gentiles. And that was always God's mission, even in the Old Testament. That the psalmist says that the nations would come in. That God would give commands to his people to say that even when you're organizing your communities and, and, and when God was leaving, leading them to the promised land, they would have the law and they would worship. But he says, hey, don't forget about the sojourner. Don't forget about the Gentile and the servants. Bring them in too. That's a little pointer, a little gift to say. Because one day, they're going to be part of his family too. And they're going to know the promises of God. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, the same church, one faith, one baptism, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So as history is moving along, a redemptive history is moving on, there's this anticipation of, of it's going to be revealed, it's going to be revealed. What is it ultimately? Well, through Christ Jesus... Now Jews and Gentiles will become one people, one church, by belief in him, by belief in the same the gospel. There's not going to be different groups. They're all going to be one. God is forming a one new humanity among all the tribes, all the tongue, all, all nations. Notice how Paul talks about this in Romans 4. I love, I love the language here. I think it helps us understand kind of what, what, what the grand scope of this gospel is and the, the mystery that's being revealed here. And in Romans 4, 13, he says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law, who are to be the heirs? 
Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So, so here's, here's what Paul's saying. He's, he's saying, hey, hey, you, you can't get into the family by obeying God's commands. That sounds like heresy. I mean, I'm a good person. I follow God's commands. Right? I mean, can you, can you imagine a Jewish Christian coming into the faith in the first century going like, we, we know God's commands. We follow God's commands. But, but here's what, what Paul's doing. A little bit, little bit of tongue-in-cheek. There's all kinds of humor in the, in the Scriptures. He's saying, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. He's, he's basically saying, no one can keep the law. Because wrath's coming. If you think you got into the family because you're a good person and you follow the commands of God, think differently. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul will say in Romans 3. The law doesn't get you in. Any amens to that? Thank you, Lord, right? I mean, I mean, if you, you look at my life and you look at God's commands and you look at my life and you see some inconsistencies there, how about a lot of inconsistencies? There was inconsistency just driving in here this morning. And so I'm thinking, well, well that's really, really good news here that, 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 that nobody comes in the family of God, whether you're Jew or Gentile, those that have the law, know the commands, know the scriptures, go to church every Sunday, or those that have no clue what it says, they all come through the same gate in the same way. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. It's through faith that we come and experience the promises, become heirs of Christ, get all the family benefits that are in Christ Jesus, all the things that we, we, we read about in, in Ephesians 1 and 2, all these spiritual blessings, redemption, adoption, forgiveness, grace, mercy, all the things, a raft of God lifted, adopted in the family, all these many blessings are now ours in Christ Jesus through faith, by grace. And so, the way that Paul understood his mission, the nature of this gospel that's been revealed to him and this mystery from, from all ages was that there's going to be a time where this message is going to be preached, this good news of Jesus Christ, and it's about a message that not only Jews but Gentile, anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ could come into the family of God and become one people. Now, for some of us, I feel like when I say things like that, there's not like an excitement. There's not like a standing up and going, yeah, that's right. It's the way it should be. I feel like we get really excited about the personal, individual salvation because that's we live in America and that's just the air we breathe. Everything's about you, right? And that's the air I breathe. That's, I mean, for 40 years, right? I mean, that, that's, it, it's me, it's Jesus, it's believing on Jesus, having my sins forgiven, and going to heaven when I die. The church, nah, it's okay, whatever, I'll take it or leave it. But what Paul is saying in the gospel that was revealed to him and the gospel that's been revealed to us in the scriptures is one that says, not only are we united in Christ Jesus to him, amen, forgiven, but we're also united together as a family. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. Or you have an incomplete gospel. And those that would say, I, don't, I just need Jesus, I don't need the church, you have no category in Scripture. You don't exist. You're an orphan. Because what I see in culture and what I see is, is sometimes we don't realize that like, it's really clear. Like Ephesians, just hang on Ephesians 2 and 3. It's really clear. Like it would be, I mean, a, 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 a Christian being persecuted in the first century and, and someone would come along and say, I love Jesus, but I don't love his church would go, uh, excuse me? Like, what are you talking about? You mean the, the community that Jesus laid his life down for? You mean the community that, that God has given you gifts so that you could use in the body to build it up and make it mature? You mean that community? You mean when it says in Hebrews, let's not give up you know, meeting together, that it's good that we, we need each other we, to build each other up and, and for, toward good work? Like, how does that happen if you're just in your underwear in the basement? Really hard to use your gifts. Watching Osteen in the basement. You shouldn't do that anyways, but that's a different sermon. 
or, or your favorite TV preacher, right? And I know there's times we have to do that, right? I know there's times that we're sick or we're at home or, or whatever. Just be careful. Christian TV is really weird. It's like, I, I don't know. Like, is that real? I don't know. He has weird hair. I don't know. But this gospel involves a people that God is redeeming and bringing together. And secondly, as we look at the nature of the gospel shared, is that's how Paul understood his mission. It wasn't just to get individuals into heaven with Jesus. Of course, that was part of it. But it's to see a, a people, Jew and Gentile, come together. That was the mystery that these people that weren't supposed to be together, they weren't supposed to like each other, that every tribe and tongue and nation would come together from every corner of the earth to proclaim uh, the mercies and kindness and, and, and sovereignty and, and, and all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God to the ends of the earth. So, so the nature of the gospel revealed, but also the nature of the gospel shared. Because Paul understood his, this gospel wasn't something just to be contemplated and reflected on and thought about. It had a pushing-out nature to it. And that's why he says in, in verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That he understood it wasn't just something to, to think on, reflect on. God had revealed this to him and said, said, Paul, this is how the gospel is. This is what Jesus has, has done. That even the Gentiles are going to be able to come in. They're going to be heirs of the promise. They're going to be part of the family of God. And that's what I've been revealing for all of eternity. But he says, i I got work for you to do as well. It's something to be shared with others. It's something to be preached. It's something to be talked about. It's something to be discussed. And he understood, I love again the emphasis on grace, because you remember he said that earlier in verse 2, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, and then in 7, of this gospel is made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, that he understands that all of this is just a gift. Paul didn't earn it, he doesn't own it, he didn't think it up, but it was revealed to him, now go in my power, the power that works within you, and tell others about this great mystery that has now been revealed. So Paul saw himself as the least of all the apostles. He saw himself as weak and insignificant. I always have a hard time with when he says that. Because I mean, if you read Paul, you read the New Testament, you're just like, really, Paul? Like, did you not see what you've been doing for the sake of Christ and his church, <laughs> right? I mean, I've heard a pastor say, you know, he's got like a cape blowing in the wind. He's just like, I'm so weak. I'm the chief of sinners. And you're just like, like wh- wh- what are you talking about? Like you were bitten by snakes, you were beaten half dead, right? And it's just like, he just gets around people, they get saved, they, people touch him, they get healed. Just like, I'm just so weak, I'm just, you know, you're just like, really, Paul? Have you seen me? Like, come on. Like, nobody's got healed by touching my corduroys, ever. Or my hanky hanging out of my, my back pocket and gets touched, and oh, they got healed. Awesome, praise God. Never. But I also find great comfort that the fact that Apostle Paul, of all people who turned the Roman Empire upside down, can say, I'm weak, and it's only by the grace of God that God would do anything through my life. And I think that's a great encouragement to us, right? <laughs> like the guy who wrote three-fourths of the New Testament's going, I'm weak. Like none of you wrote the Bible. So no pressure here, right? That we could, just like God, the power of God that works in and through us could actually be used by God in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our work, wherever God has placed us to make known this great mystery. So, so, so how does Paul understand this mission? Like, like, what does it look like in real time? He actually shows kind of these three little stages of how this gospel is going to continue to go forth out into the world, this gospel that's going to be shared. Did you catch it in verse, in verse 8? He said he was going to preach first to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. But what are those unsearchable riches? Well, it's all, everything we've been reading about in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Ephesians, right? We've been blessed by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing that before the world, God loved us. He redeemed us. He found us. He forgave us. He brought us into the family of God. It's by grace you are saved. He's made us alive in Christ. All this language, this is the, the unsearchable realities of the gospel. This same stuff that Paul talks about in first in chapter 1 and 2 is the same stuff that we are to preach and proclaim to the nations, to those that are not in Christ Jesus, specifically here in his time to the Gentiles. 
which by the way is most of our ministry now. Not that there aren't Jews that don't need to know Jesus, there are many, but mostly in our context and most places of the world, this is our mission, right? It's to Gentiles. It's to say, there's these unsearchable riches that you've been longing for, this inheritance that you can be part of, that you can be part of something way bigger than yourself, that you can be reconciled to God, you can have your sins forgiven, that the wrath of God can be lifted, that you can be invited into a family, a bunch of crazy lunatics called the church that God is not done with, by the way, and that, that the work he began, he will complete. And I just wish for us, I mean, if you're in this room and it's your first time here and you're kicking the tires, just stick around a little bit longer than a couple weeks because here's a couple things that will happen. One, I'm going to say something you don't like. It's my spiritual gift. And it's not probably because I'm going to offend you or say something, you know, sinful, but it's probably because I'm going to say something that's from the scriptures and sometimes the things in the scriptures are hard to hear. So, so don't bail on us. But also, you're going to look at these people you know, that are around, and I won't name you by names, but you know who you are. you got some issues. <laughs> and we're not perfect, and we're hypocritical, and we're inconsistent. And there's days we don't have joy. And there's days we wonder if we can get through the next day. And, and there's times we say things and do things that aren't consistent with the gospel. But praise be to God that this is the, the group, the community that God is at work and he's going to redeem us and he's making us new and, 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 he, and he's not going to give up on us. Welcome. I remember I had a, a, a guy, I forget who said, I, I can only who attributed it to, but, but he, he said, yeah, I know, I know you look at my life and you go, well, geez, you're kind of a mess. Aren't you a Christian? Shouldn't you, why are you still like this? He says, man, you should have seen me before I was a Christian. You think I'm obnoxious and hypocritical now? Wow, geez, before Christ, it was way worse. But this is, the unsearchable riches that we are called to preach and proclaim. And it's not about you know, perfection. It's not about good and, and morality, but it's about a gracious, kind God who redeems sinners like us and makes us new. And so he understood that was part of his message, was to preach to the Gentiles. But, but notice how Paul, even secondly, expands it out even further if you keep reading in, in chapter 3. Notice in verse 9, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages, in God who created all things. So Paul is to preach to the Gentiles. That was his main mission as a, as a missionary, as an apostle in, in the first century. But he says all things. That, that, he, that he's also saying, yeah, that also would include Jews and everyone else in between. But he also says something so, I think, profound. If you read it really close, I think if you, you can kind of catch this little hint, this little taste, he says, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Why does he say created all things? I think Paul understood his message to be shared was, and to bring to light to everyone was not just this gospel of Believe in Jesus and have your sins forgiven and go to heaven, which is important and vital in this personal union with Christ. Yes and amen. Adopted in the family of God. But he says, the one who's... Here are the kids. Yeah. Herd of elephants. But the God who created all things. Why does he put that in there? I struggle with that all, this, all week. I think he puts it in there because he wants us to see a bigger gospel. That it's not just a God of individual salvation and I can take it or leave it, but a God who's redeeming all things, who's also the creator of all things. That the, the message of the gospel doesn't begin with have your sins forgiven. It begins in Genesis 1. A God who created all things. Right? Created man and, and woman in his image. It doesn't start with sin. It starts with creation. That's where our gospel presentation, a, a, a group of people that are made in the image of God, that every single human being that you come in contact with every single day of your life, you have commonality with. They're made in the image of God, just like you. Designed to reflect God, designed to know God, to honor, respect God. Whether they know that or not, you already have commonality. And that's why we see people that aren't Christians wanting the same things that Christians want. Things like justice, right? Things like having a happy family, all those kinds of things, because we're made in the image of God. So you don't go, oh, I, don't, I have nothing in common with my pagan neighbors. Are you kidding me? You're made in the image of God. That's kind of a big thing. He knew them before they knit together in his mother's womb, just like you. Fearfully, wonderfully made, just like you. So we have this commonality, and I think what Paul's doing is he's saying, I want to 
not make our gospel smaller. I want to make it even bigger because God is not only redeeming individuals, he's also redeeming the entire creation, and, which includes individuals, but every culture, every tribe, every, every tongue, every nation. He's doing a work in our midst. That there's a God who's a Lord over all things. So remember how we began the sermon? So don't lose heart. God's not like... <laughs> God never sweats about anything or gets tired. You realize that? I think about that a lot. Never grows weary, never grows tired. Never is without all the information. Like, what? Oh? Who, who got elected? Who, who works at that company? When, when was that person born? Wait, there's wars and discord and all kinds of crazy stuff going on in the world. He's not unaware of any of those things. Because he's a God who's redeeming and restoring all things. It's all part of his eternal plan and purposes, as Paul says in verse um, 11. You know how much great comfort that is when your life is just out of control and falling apart to know that the God of heaven and earth goes, I know. And he knows because he sent his only son, right? I mean, when we think about relating to God, we, we relate to, you know, if we've seen the Father, we've seen the Son. And so if Jesus came in the human flesh and he goes, hey, I've been tempted in every way that you have been. I've gone through all the suffering, all the, all the struggle that you do. I know what it's like. Can you imagine how, how crazy your prayer life could change in an instant knowing that God is like that? God never says, I don't understand what you're talking about. I can't relate to that. Never says that. Because he's Lord and he's creator and he's also redeemer. And then I think the third piece that I think is so important for us this morning is in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That what Paul understood his mission to, to share this gospel was that, that actually through this body, this church that, that God is redeeming and bringing together, that, that God's wisdom would be made known and be seen through his people. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this one verse because there's a lot of, I think, controversy around kind of what does this actually mean. And, and the controversy is not about the manifold wisdom of God, but it's about uh, being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, I'll just say this. Some people interpret that as what he's talking about is making known to the angels, these spiritual beings, when, when, when someone is redeemed and they come into Christ, they come into the family of God, that somehow the angels take notice and, and, and marvel at God. And I think it could include that. A lot of interpreters go that route. But I don't think that's what exactly what this means. And here's why I don't believe that. Because if you look at chapter 6, notice Paul's language when he talks about the armor of God. Verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, so, so what, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 6, what, what, what is this about? The manifold wisdom of God. Here, here's what I think it means. I think it means we believe Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood but it's about spiritual forces in the world that's what the whole armor of God's all about if our battle's not against flesh and blood we don't pull out a gun what do we pull out we pull out spiritual resources to fight the battle right that's what the whole armor of God's about that there's greater realities than just things we can see with our eyes but there's things underneath that there's evil there's darkness there's Satan underneath those things and so so I think the battle is again just as Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4 that people don't believe in Christ why because their hearts have been been, uh, or their minds have been blinded, right? That Satan has blinded the minds, right? So spiritual reality has to come. The gospel has to come to lift the veil so that they can see and believe and see Jesus for who he is and what he's doing in the universe. So our battle's not against flesh and blood. Our battle's not arguing people in the kingdom or, or forcing people into the kingdom. It's praying that the Spirit of God would open their eyes to those things. But what does the wisdom of God have to do with that? I think that every time a person comes to Jesus Christ and every time the church gets a little bit bigger, that it pushes back this darkness and they take notice. That God is doing something in the universe and the enemies and Satan and the spiritual forces take notice and go, what are we supposed to do? 
And I believe that because that's really what the whole scripture teaches, that, that Jesus has already won the victory, right? Satan is, and, and the enemies are on a leash. He's won it through the cross. Paul will say that in Colossians, right? That, that, that he's disarmed the evil in the world by the cross. So even though there's still evil, even though there's still sin and sorrow, I think it's through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, that the world can begin to see what redemption looks like and what God is doing in the universe through the body of Christ. Now, very imperfectly, by the way. But people can get a little taste of the kindness of God, the grace of God, the mercies of God. That, that how we live our lives, people get a little taste of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. That we don't live for money and stuff and power and possessions, which is also stuff. Catch that. But we have a, a different king and a different kingdom that we, we live for, that we don't hold grudges. We forgive because we've seen the forgiveness that's give, been given to us. That we don't see money as evil. It's just a tool, but it's a tool to, to provide for our families. But it's also a tool to be generous with, right? It's not something to see how many you know, stacks of cash I can have before I die and how many toys I can have before I die. That shouldn't be our agenda. That shouldn't be our goal. Nothing's wrong with stuff. But don't make that your ultimate treasure. Because it'll always betray you, right? Don't be like Scrooge McDuck. You remember Scrooge McDuck? And his big vault of coins and on ducktails. Am I outdating myself? Yeah. It's fun to swim in, but it won't just last. It won't give you ultimate joy. So I think the the gospel that, that Paul has has been shown and the gospel that he's to share says that God is redeeming a people that can now display the manifold wisdom of God through this body called the church. And it's another reason why we're so passionate about church planting. Why? Because we believe whenever a church is planted, there's another opportunity for the manifold wisdom of God to be put on display for the world to see. That it's good for society. It's good for our cities, right? It's another opportunity to say, this is what God is like as a people gather together, a redeemed people, not a perfect people, but a people that have experienced God's grace and experienced his mercy and his forgiveness, that now they can live that out together and be a true city on a hill, a counterculture in a city within a city. Manifold God, manifold wisdom of God on display through the church. It's God's plan A of redemption. So let's close with this. What, what does that mean for us today? What are the implications for us like today, today, 2018? Because again, our mission's a little different, not Jew-Gentile trying to get them in the church. I mean, yes, there is a ministry to Jewish people, of course, but, but that's not as big as, as, as it would be now. A couple things, I think. And I think this is going back to verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart. How do we not lose heart? Well, I want you to remember that the church is a central piece of human history. See, we have this weird thing. It's like secular history and then like Christian history, which I don't think are two different things. I think it's just history. And there's one hero and there's one centerpiece of human history. His name is Jesus Christ. That's how we understand it. That everything that happens in history, everything, is still part of the will and mercies and sovereignty of God. So we go, oh, we got secular history, and people look at you know, presidents and, and empires and, and the way things went and, and, and the way you know, empires rose and fell and all interesting, but you know, trying to figure out what, what is that all about. But then we have you know, how we understand Paul's mission in, in the Christian history, and we say, well, there's this person, Jesus Christ, who, who's the center of redemption, who's a Lord over all history, every tribe, every tongue, every situation, how things move. But I need to infuse that with verse 11 to say, remember what verse 11 said, if you caught that, this was according to the eternal purposes that he has revealed, realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, that all history has an eternal purpose to it. That all the ebbs and the flow are ultimately going to end in the redemption of all things. That all the darkness, all the pain, all the suffering, all the sorrow will be undone by our gracious Lord Jesus Christ, who's making all things new. There's only one history. All this garbage about being on the right side of history, I'm just going to be on the side of history of Jesus, we'll be okay. Because he's the Lord of all things. I think that's a great encouragement for us when we begin to lose heart. 
Secondly, the church is vital for understanding the full gospel. We have to get away from this selfish, individualistic Christianity that's just me and Jesus and my ESV study Bible, and I don't need the church. That's nonsense. It's a half a gospel. The church can't be what it needs to be without you. <laughs> like there's so many commands in Scripture and so many things that we just can't even do without you. Like the 59 one another's, really difficult if you're not part of this. Pray for one another, encourage one another, right? Use your gifts, all these, all these kinds of things, right? These, these one another passages, very, very difficult if you're not with us. And all these gifts that God gives to the body that it says that we can't even mature in Christ without all the gifts there. Guess what? It's not just the pastor's gifts that you need. Thank, praise be to God. I have like a gift and a half. And so I need all your gifts too. Because you minister to me just as much as I minister to you. I won't, I won't call them out because I didn't ask them to use them. But, but someone invited us to their house and, and just gifts of hospitality on display. I was so encouraged. Gifts I do not have. Here's some Doritos and, uh, I don't know, we have some Pepsi over here. Good luck. I mean, that's, that's how it looks like in my house. Not my gifting. Gifts of mercy, gifts of teaching, gifts of leadership, right? Get, get all these, these gifts that God has given to the body are so important for us. And it, it's way more than that. It's not just about gifting. But God is redeeming not just individuals, but a people that are going to be and display the manifold wisdom of God. We don't do that well. We're not united well if we just kind of do our own thing. We need leadership. We need accountability. We need discipline. All those things, we submit ourselves together as a community so that we can, can walk in integrity with Christ together and grow together. And then last, I would say this. The church is really a non-negotiable for healthy, deep, mature Christian living. I've never met in my entire life, and again, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm 40. I've been a Christian for about almost 40, uh, 20, 22 years. Never met a deep, wise, godly, not perfect person, Christian that isn't walking deeply with another group of believers. Never met them. Every person I know that's not walking deeply with another group of Christians always have a problem with the church. They always got issues. They always want to tell me why the church is dumb and why we're all hypocrites and all this kind of stuff. I've never seen it. Because there's something about taking all my pride and all my sin and laying myself before another people and saying, you have free reign to look at my life and show me the ways in which I'm not walking in accordance with the gospel. It's a lot easier to say, I'm going to stay on the fringes and just be self-righteous and hypocritical and go like, oh, you guys, oh, you guys. And I, you don't get in the mess and get in the fray. You're never going to be mature. <laughs> right? That's why we do city groups. You want to get a bunch of weirdos in the same room that don't like each other, that don't like the same things, and go, hey, now be family together and love each other and learn how to forgive each other, right? I mean, you've walked into a group, you're just like, I don't know. It's a weird group. Might have to check out another one. Well, glad you're here. You're weird too. Welcome. That's the beauty of church. It's the beauty of it. We can't walk this out together without being in community together. We can't grow in deep, mature, Christ-loving, Christ-exalting discipleship without the church. I wanna, I'm going to close with this little quote from uh, this commentary from John Stott. I thought he captured this well, better than I could. Here's what he says. If the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? No, we shall seek to become responsible church members, active in some local manifestation of the universal church. We shall not be able to acquiesce in low standards which fall far short of the New Testament ideals for God's new society. Whether mechanical meaningless worship services or fellowship which is icy cold and even spoiled by rivalries which make the Lord's Supper a farce or such inward-looking isolationism as to turn the church into a ghetto which is indifferent to the outside world and its pain. If instead, like Paul, we keep before us the vision of God's new society as his family, his dwelling place, and his instrument in the world, then we shall constantly be seeking to make our church's worship more authentic, its fellowship more caring, and its outreach more compassionate. 
In other words, like Paul again, we shall be ready to pray, to work, and if necessary, to suffer in order to turn the vision into a reality. Thanks, John. Stop. I should have just read that and said amen, but every week we have the, the privilege of the Lord's Supper. And this Jesus is the one who died for his church, who loved it so much that while we were enemies of God, he was willing to lay his life down and say, I'm looking for a people. I'm looking for a family. Even though you hate me now, I'm laying my life down for you. He loved the church that much. And we're not here because of our goodness. We're not here because of where we grew up or how we vote or what kind of music we like. We're here because of what Christ has done for us. He's redeemed us to be a family. A family that was bought at a huge price. My prayer for, for us is this, really every week, of course there's an individual reality to that. We should come before the way we take the communion, break the piece of the bread, we'll dip it in the cup, and there's an individual nature to that. We want to be honest before God. If we have sin, lay that before him, and he's gracious to forgive. We'll have two lines up in the front. But also, just as I've said the last few weeks as we've been looking at these texts, is just look around and see the miracle that God has done here. And every church, for that matter, past, present, future, that, that he would redeem a people to himself, but also into a family from every tribe and tongue and nation and every background and say, you're my brothers and sisters. Come and eat. If you are a believer in Christ, please come and take communion. We'd love for you to celebrate with us. Uh, there'll be two uh, lines up in the front. If you have any kind of allergies, uh, gluten-free bread, nut-free bread there in the middle, please feel free to take that. If you're not a believer, we have some prayers in the uh, city life. We'd love for you to think on that and, uh, and, and, and reflect on that. If you'd like to talk more about what it means to follow Christ and, and why it matters so much to us, come talk with me or one of our elders. We'd love to chat with you or pray with you. So with that, we're going to go along. Let's pray. Father, renew our vision for the church, that we are to be the manifold wisdom of God, to show and demonstrate and display the goodness and grace and mercy and kindness and power of God in our midst, and how we talk and how we live and who we are. God, we know we can't do it in our own strength, in our own efforts, but we need the power of the Holy Spirit, and we need your grace pour out on us, God. And the ways in which we've minimized your bride, God, have mercy on us, forgive us. But renew a vision for us so that we can continue to see your wisdom on display in our city and in our world. We love you. We love the church. We're thankful to be part of it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.